0: Today on Sagittarian Matters, Queerness, Quarantine as Care, and Considerations for Your quarantine Pod with my very special guest, Dr. Joe Osmondson. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Matters, What's the- Joseph Osmondson is a scientist and a writer living in New York. I met Joe in 2019 when we shared a dorm building at the Tin House Writers Workshop. Michelle T. and I were shuttling snacks back and forth between dorms when I heard this booming laugh as I walked in on a candid talk between Joe, the laugher, and his friend slash podcast co-host Tommy Pico, sitting at a table surrounded by Costco trail mix and red vines. I liked them both immediately. Listeners may remember that I accidentally poured dairy creamer into my carefully hoarded Intelligentsia instant coffee that trip. It really messed up my morning right before I had to give a lecture. But I digress. Since then, I have followed Joe's work, read his articles in Guernica and the New Republic, and devoured his poetic memoir, Inside Out. Recently, Joe's writing about COVID-19 as a queer person and a scientist has nourished my anxious, curious pandemic soul, and I really wanted him to come on the show so I could share some of this with you. He recently posted a corn pod discussion list that I found super useful in these chillier pandemic months. We're going to talk about it more on the podcast, and then I'm going to post it on the Sagittarian Matters Instagram page. Joe is one-fourth of the podcast Food for Thought. You can find his writing on class, race, sex, and science. Plus, I'd link to the Quorum Pod discussion list at josephosmenson.com. Now please enjoy my talk with brand new Pisces friend to the show, Joseph Osmondson. Dr. Joe. The science ho. That's how he's known on his own podcast. <music> How do you describe yourself right now? Who are you? What defines you right this moment?
1: Uh yeah I mean I you know my I I keep my bios really short um and so I'm a a scientist writer and activist and I've always been all of those things they've sort of taken up different or less space in my life uh, at different times in my life um and in the last year the the activist that I was in my early and mid 20s has come racing back out because there's been such a need for science advocacy uh, in the face of this pandemic and really the failure at every level of government. Everyone, I think it's very easy to identify the ways in which uh, Donald Trump has failed to lead a nationwide pandemic response but Cuomo and de Blasio in New York City and state have really failed and left a lot of people t- to die unnecessarily. Um, so there's just been a complete vacuum of of leadership, of policy, uh, and then of just communication to people of what is happening and what they need to do and how they can risk mitigate and how they can care for themselves and their families. Um, so yeah, I've been... <laughs> very hard um, with a group, um, mostly with a group uh, that calls itself the COVID Working Group New York. So it's a lot of uh, it's a really interesting mix of, of folks, including a lot of the surviving alumni of ACT UP New York, um, the HIV AIDS activist group from the 80s and 90s. Um so I had I had looked up to to this group of activists for a very long time uh, as a younger queer person just like a half a generation younger than them but who grew up in the HIV plague years and it's been quite remarkable that this really horrible um pandemic has given me like a very close personal um relationship with these these activists that um I'm very grateful to to learn from every day.
0: What I I was looking that up and I was wondering what kind, like how this mirrors that epidemic and what activist lessons the people in that cohort yeah. are bringing to this.
1: So, I mean, you know, the, uh, it, as a viral pandemic, um, HIV and COVID could be, it's, it, they're very, very different viruses, right? Of course, HIV is, um, uh, a retrovirus it integrates into the host cell. Once you're infected with HIV, you're infected for life. Um, And, uh, you know, a respiratory virus like um, SARS-CoV-2. So SARS-CoV-2 is the virus and COVID-19 is the disease. A respiratory pathogen like SARS-CoV-2, in in this case, it's a virus that's acute. It comes and goes. You get sick. Um, The virus usually within two weeks is gone right Um, there's some exceptions to that rule but this is not a virus that you get that virus and you live with it for life you may have symptoms like we we talk about the covid long hauler so there are people who don't recover from the illness but that's not because they're still infected with the virus Right. So in terms of like the pathology of the disease, um, you know, COVID tends to kill people if they, if they die of it within a couple of weeks. And of course, HIV has this long latency period where people get infected and and may not be ill for a decade. So the viruses are incredibly different, but what pathogens do, what what pandemics do is um, throw sharp light on all of the pre-existing fissures in healthcare, culture, and society. Uh, It shows the weaknesses in our ability to respond. Um, It shows the the lack of um, capacity of our healthcare systems that are built for profit, right? If you are running a healthcare system for profit, you don't keep a bunch of extra beds around in the case of a pandemic. So it's very easy to very quickly end up with a situation like uh, New York in April where people were dying of things that weren't COVID because they couldn't get care in the hospital. you know, it, it shows us whose uh, lives and um, work we most value. Um, there was a tweet, I can't remember who it was, um, you know, sometime in May, that said there was never a lockdown. There was rich people having poor people bring them things. You know, working people never um, were able to be locked down. Uh, essential workers were always on the train going to work. Um, the, the the risk of, you um, of disease, um, morbidity and mortality from the disease was significantly higher among working people who were not able to work from home. Uh, And that of course, you know, um, means that more black and brown people in places like New York um, got sick and died. So, you know, the the pathogens could not be more different, but what it tells us about society, what it tells us about racism, what it tells us about class, those things are absolutely, unfortunately, you know, deep rooted, uh, in, in both of the crises.
0: You're just such a beautiful writer. And I love the way that you you intersect personal stories and science writing.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I, when I first started trying to be a writer, I like really um, resisted writing anything about science because I just wanted to be a serious writer, capital S, capital W. And I wanted to be able to write about anything. I still want to be able to write about anything, but it also, you know, I was putting this pressure on myself not to write about science, but of course, science is a huge part of my life and the way that I look at the world. It's been my job for, you know, since I was in college. It's been my job, it's been my only adult um, job. And, you know, I, I picture the world and I think about the world in ways that are deeply informed by by my work. And and then w- once I sort of gave myself permission to start writing about science, I wanted to do it in a really queer way, in a way that really infuses it again with feeling, um, with, with what it feels like to be a scientist, which is to care deeply about the world. It's a horrible, low-paying job where you fail 99% of the time. You wouldn't do it if you didn't care. So this kind of veneer of objective distance that, uh, with which science is often written about, um, I I really wanted to undo that and, and to write about it in the way that, um, makes it feel, um, as deeply in the work as it feels to me as a, as a person who's given my life to this, this stuff.
0: Well, I think you really get it across and then you kind of infuse theory in it, like queer theory Mm. and writing, Mm -hmm. like so many different things in it um like race and class that it just it all i feel like it all coheres it all gels for me the non-scientist the lay person who is reading it
1: well thank you i feel very seen yeah like very much like yeah uh you know deep reading of literature and theory and um a lot of a lot of pisces feels Mm. and um and a lot of of um of questions about the world, because um, that's you know science is essentially trying to ask really tough questions about the world around us. Um,
0: Can I ask you what has your what has your year been like? What has your quarantine or pandemic trajectory been like this year?
1: It has been hell. Um, you know, I, I I don't think it will ever be as bad as it was in March and April. Um, because we were being totally gaslit by everybody. Um, every scientist I knew knew that this year was going to be like this in March, everyone I knew. And scientists love to disagree and argue. I have never seen a thing that every scientist I know, um, and I know a lot of scientists cause like, you know, this is what I've done with I, everyone was like, holy fuck. Like we, this is the thing. Um, and no one would listen. Uh, you know, I was, I was on the phone with some folks in, in queer nightlife and, um, sex work uh people you know communities that i care deeply about and, and, and am a part of um and i was telling them y'all we we have to like we cannot be having big parties and and some of the people in my community were like oh man you're just listening to the media the media is blowing this out of proportion for clicks and i i had to be like please no like that is not what's happening and also you know we need to be prepared for our for our nightlight you know people who work in nightlife. Um, and sex work sex parties need to be prepared to be shut down for a year that's going to happen you know and I was sort of breaking this news to folks, and it wasn't it, it was hard to get it to sink in uh, It was hard to get you know we were on de blasio and Cuomo March second shut the fucking city down, and they wouldn't do it and it was being we were completely being gaslit by everyone we knew that um COVID was in New York. We knew it was in Washington state. We knew it was in California. We knew this based on some kind of tough to explain, but really obvious scientific data. Remember, no one could get tested back then, mm-hmm. if you'll remember, mm-hmm. but we, we had some sort of, uh, <laughs> tricky sequencing, phylogenetic ways to understand how bad it was. And we knew it was bad, but no one would, would listen. Um, so that's where we started. Uh, and, and it was, um, you know, when, when you're dealing with something that is bad and you're being gaslight, gaslit and you know people are going to die. Like, it wasn't just like, uh, you know, I've been gaslit by a partner before and that feels bad. But this is like, human beings are going to die. Yeah. Um, you're like somebody so kind of in bad. a
0: disaster movie or like in Ghostbusters. Yeah. You're like running around being like, listen, you got to listen to the yeah. Ghostbusters. And they're like, I don't think so. <laughs>
1: You know, and the ghosts are coming into the house. It it was so um, it has been a bad year Um, there. You know, uh, the the New York Times estimates that if the city had shut down a week earlier, 10,000 people could have been saved. And that's what we were trying to do. And in a way, that feels like a huge failure. Um, You know, activism like science is full of failures. You never know what thing you're going to do is going to matter. So. I'll say that it has been a very tough year on that side, but I will also say that I'm so grateful to be queer on the other side, because um, we have models for living in the face of pandemics, and we have models of non-traditional uh, family structures, and my corn pod has saved my life again and again and again, and um, you know, I'm so grateful that I'm not living in the suburbs in a nuclear family with no friends around. Um, you know, I have one of my Quorum pop members lives a block away, uh, and we all manage our risk together and I feel great hugging him and seeing him in person and cooking together. And we've been doing that since pretty early spring. Uh, and you know, so I, my relationships have deepened, um, we've cared for one another in ways that, um, have, have, you know, it's been a test for our relationships and we've passed those tests. And so it feels the year also feels kind of like a hug in a weird way. Like the worst has happened and it's been horrible and traumatic and we're all going to need so much therapy. And also in the face of the worst, um, we've cared for one another and protested together and cried together and cooked for one another and, um, done laundry for the other person when the other person couldn't do laundry. And, you know, um, so that, um, there's, there's both terror and anger and, um, and resiliency and pride.
0: Yeah. I at the beginning of pandemic, I was living alone in LA. At some point, I was crying on the phone with some, you know, I was like bleaching my groceries. I was putting on my homemade hazmat suit to go yes. wait in line to go to yes. Trader Joe's. Yes. Oh, you know, God. conducting myself like I was like, get in, get out, and just yelling at people like, six feet! I need six feet! Yes. Oh and my just God, like screaming yes. at people in the street like, six feet! And then yes. like a tweet went viral. Some man saw me screaming in the street and tweeted it and it went viral. He's like, I want this girl to be president. I just saw her scream, get the you know, fuck all of you to a bunch of open mouth <laughs> joggers running at her. That was the beginning, and it was feeling really dark. Like I was crying on the phone with oh, a friend so and she was, was like, so when's, when's the last time you hugged somebody? And I was like, A yeah. couple months ago. And she yeah. was like, You have to hug someone and I just still couldn't because of my anxiety yeah. about it. So I hugged a tree and I got caught by my neighbor oh, hugging f- a tree in his yard. Which in my LA neighborhood is like a shitty little tree in somebody's like teeny <laughs> tiny apartment yard. I was like, Oh, yeah. hey, yeah. Craig. But um <laughs> then my neighbor and I found a baby squirrel together and he and I formed mm. an unlikely corn he was like the first person to come into my apartment in months. Wow. To that, nurse the I mean, squirrel. That was
1: a big that was a big deal. The, the coming into one another's apartment for the first time. I mean I really um you know my partner and i saw each other and my roommate at that time and i saw each other but i did not even with the people who are now my pod it was like two months that i didn't see anybody and i started my my birthday is in late february and i had a little shindig um and then that was the i mean i was locked down from like february 29th i I, because i just knew what was happening and it and my anxiety was so high like like you're saying um and i didn't want to participate you know people were still brunching like people were out i would go out on sunday in like mid-march and people were like la-di-da brunching indoors having cocktails and i was like we're all going to die um and i didn't you know i didn't want to participate in that, in that death Like I- so i was just inside um you know just anxious as fuck
0: I also think about senior citizens because I care very deeply yep. about old people and people that capitalism has kind of like kicked to the curb as far as being valuable right. citizens. And people are like, right. "Well, what's the risk? I'm I'm healthy. I'm a, you know maybe I'm asymptomatic. Yep. Who cares?" And I'm like, "Well, you're killing grandma. Like that lady literally, can't help you're it. killing grandma. Um, yeah. Uh, That's yeah. how uh, I feel uh, about uh, people going home for Thanksgiving. Which, like, who cares about Thanksgiving in the first place? I
1: I, I love Thanksgiving, but uh, you know I. No, I'm not going anywhere for Thanksgiving. Like
0: I Well I love eating it, but it's not.
1: Yeah. yeah. I'll be in my I'll be in my house. I mean it's I, I typically don't travel outside of the city for Thanksgiving, but um for sixteen years I've spent Thanksgiving with my best friend in the Bronx. Sixteen years straight without missing one. And it feels um it's a tradition that is probably the most holiday important holiday tradition to me personally. It's more important than seeing my family at Christmas to me and uh, I hope my family doesn't listen to this, and I um, uh, love you, Mom, and uh, I'm not doing it, and it hurts very badly. It hurts deeply. I'm deeply hurt by not being able to spend time with my best friend and her parents, who are like parents to me, um, but it it's like, it could kill people, <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah, I... I just couldn't. I couldn't bear it. I, if I yeah. had anything to do with somebody's parents, grandparents, and you know, I've been around immune-compromised people, so I just, yep. I've been, I've been fraternizing with seniors and immunocompromised people, or people that are taking care of immunocompromised people, and so I've just right. been like, yep. I, I just can't do yep. bonus risky behaviors because I couldn't live with myself. I just it wouldn't make sense with the way I've aligned myself in ways I've tried to be of service to the community to then right. use myself as like a missile to accidentally do this. So um,
1: the way that the way that I've been trying, to, I've been trying to like reframe for myself in a way that, you know, my therapist would typically do. Um, and so the way that I've been trying to think about it um, is, is that it, it should feel good to, 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 to do these behaviors that are good for others, right? It, like we should feel good about it. You know, I should feel good about sacrificing my Thanksgiving. It should be a positive affect to me. It, it's it's showing that I care. It's it's m- managing my own risk, even if I'm not one of the most vulnerable people, for other people. And and that is a deep act of not isolation, but of love and care. So you know, I've I've been really working hard on um, you know managing my risk and having social interactions with my pod and then trying to understand trying to really feel, deeply feel the way in which that means that I'm caring for other people. Um and and, and not feel isolated because of that. It's not I'm not isolated. I am in community by managing my risk.
0: Yeah, you're among. We're all among, we're not exactly. alone. We're among.
1: And that's so, the other thing that pandemics always show us, right? It, pandemics always show us how connected people are.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Laura Perry, Emily Helmus, Rachel Cotton, Shoshana Ruth Wechter, Christy Herod, Mary Pinson, Michelle Lemoyne, and Joey Soloway. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, especially and in particular producer Chris Sutton, Please send $5, $25, $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That's hornet like the insect, leg like its appendage at gmail. Or this Justin, he's got a Venmo. It is hellbooks at Venmo. H-E double hockey sticks books. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. Don't be scared. That's just my dog's speaking voice. I want to know how your corn pod checklist came to be. Um, yeah. Even my most fervent friends, you know, that have been passing the marshmallow test, have been dealing with their quarantine fatigue, have finally been like, okay, we need to break. I need to see somebody outside of my spouse, yeah. my household. Right. And this list that you created or helped create just came up and I was like, oh my God, what a godsend.
1: Yeah, so um, it, it came out of uh, practical conversations um, between both my friends and the activist group that I work with. And so I, you know, um, thinking about risk management strategies as opposed to prescriptive, you must do this, you must do that. You know, The public health professionals tell us you have to give people options. You have to deal with the fact that people are not going to be perfect in their behaviors. People need to know the information and then to talk openly about risk and how to manage it. Um, And so I was just getting a lot of questions about, I'm doing this in my quorum pod, is that okay? Uh, and i and I hadn't seen anything out there that wasn't a do this, don't do that, but was a, a way to talk with other people about what risks are acceptable to you and to make sure that you are in agreement about uh, what risks are acceptable. There are going to be corn pods where people are have stricter rules and other corn pods where people have less strict rules. I also have someone immunocompromised in my corn pod, and we are a very strict corn pod. In part to care for that person and their needs, so uh, I drafted um, an, an initial list and then uh, sent it out both to um, the to the COVID working group um, and got incredible input there from you know community activists, from epidemiologists. Um, and, and, uh, public health professionals. And I also sent it to, um, my virologist epidemiologist group chat. Um, you know, and the epi people and public health people, this is their literal job. You know, I'm, I'm a, a microbiologist by training. Um, and so, you know, my draft of the list came from my lived experience and my experience as a, as a queer person managing HIV risk really. Um, but then it got incredible input from, from all those folks. Um, and, and, uh, I think that really, you know, um, built a document that was best built on best practices and, and, you know, uh, I initially had in the document that it was based on, um, on, Queer non-traditional family making—you know—that you you talk openly about all of the things you want in your family and what you'll accept and what you won't, and how to m- manage even change in your—you know—what you want and what you don't. Um, but we took that out of the document because we didn't want straight people to be afraid of it. Basically, um, you know, we were trying to get as wide an audience as possible, and um, but that really was the principle that it was that it was built on. Yeah, queerness saves what lives. What kind y'all. of
0: what kind of things, how does your strict corn Pod look?
1: Um, so we, you know, really are um, open with each other about everything that we do, including um Hookups, you know, it feels it feels very much like an open relationship, right? You know, someone is like, I'm on scruff, I might, I might make out with someone, and we, it goes to the group chat, and we're all like, yeah, you know, we're not going to see each other, get tested, such and such a date. Um, so, a couple of things that we pay attention to um, that you know the epidemiologists really pushed forward in um, the building of the list was that every risk behavior is at a lower risk when the in- incidence of COVID nineteen in your community is low and a higher risk when the incidence of COVID-19 in your community is high. And that is everything from a hookup to going to the grocery store, right? You cannot live without risk. Every action you have, um, you know, comes with some risk. And then, uh, you know, the likelihood that the random person in the grocery store you see is, um, has the virus that likelihood which is about the incidents in your community makes every risk behavior either more risky or less risky so you know paying attention to the number of positive cases in your city um, or neighborhood the num- the percent of uh, tests that come back positive that these things really you know should turn up or down your risk in your pod Um, You know, maybe hooking up was okay in September when the incidence in New York was very low, 500 cases a day, and the percent positivity was under 1%. But now in New York, we're at 3% uh, test positivity and well over 1,000 cases a day. So, you know, that tells you something about about every single action that you're going to take. Uh, And we're definitely, you know, having those conversations. Um, Would people break the pod? Uh, You know, a, a... person in my pod had to get on a plane to go visit an ailing parent Um, and uh, when when he came back into the pod, you know, we followed the CDC guidance, two weeks and two negative tests before we would see anyone face to face.
0: I was reading something you wrote about queerness and the feeling of no future or not knowing and like the feeling of waiting. Mm -hmm. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I'm definitely one of those writers who writes to kind of figure out what I'm thinking. Um, and so writing is an exploratory process in that way. Uh, and, and what I realized is that, um, you know, queer childhood, I had, a, I had a, a, a rural childhood. So, you know, it was also the eighties. Um, so queer childhood in a small town in the eighties, um, was one of either not, realizing who you were or realizing who you were, but not being able to embody that. So it's like, a, it's a very much an act of waiting till you could realize yourself at some other time in some other place. Uh, and I felt like that is what we were doing with the quarantine is that we were waiting. We were holding our lives to be quite small, to have a world where everyone was going to be there when we could explode again in all of the normal ways that queer people like to be out and doing all of our things. Um, and, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about Jose Esteban Munoz's um, ideas of the here and now um, versus the, the, um, the, the there and then, um, you know, about how, how um, queerness has always challenged heteronormative ways of living. Um, the nuclear family, a relationship to capital and jobs, uh, and, and you know, queer folks, um, you know, I, one of the things I hate about this, um, the Bersani idea of the rectum is a grave, queer people don't have babies, and therefore have to embody the now uh, in a way that straight people don't, is how male-centric that idea is, how, like, you know, n- queer men don't have sex in ways, queer cis men don't always have sex in ways that make babies, okay, fine, but that's not queerness. Queerness is not just queer men. Um, That being said, um, you know, I think queerness is, if you build your life not around building a life for your children, but around building your life for yourself, that gives you a different relationship to what living even means. Um, And I think that that is can be a beautiful way to envision um, living. And, you know, uh, I, I I I feel like even now I'm just exploring what I'm thinking in a way that probably is not super productive. Um, But I, you know, we can't live in the here and now fully right now. We we simply cannot live in the here and now we cannot go um, to the disco and twirl. Um, We cannot have um, the type of sex that we might typically have um, without risking uh, people in our community. Um, And so I think, there's a there's a way to hold that um uh, to hold the excesses that queer life often beautifully contains um and but to do that for the queer aesthetic of care to to do that to care for our community so that we can twirl again um as as whole as as possible
0: i i think that's really beautifully said um I think that's something that popped up as soon as the pandemic happened in LA and it wasn't just queer people but of course so many queer people that I know have a foot in activism and so mutual aid right. just sprang up immediately. People right. helping mm-hmm. each other, people being like you lost your job I still have my job. Here's a community yep. fridge here's you know a water drop, here's this, yep. here's that here's a way to try and support restaurants and then also mm-hmm. you know support unhoused people at the same time. A lot of queer stuff came up but I feel like a lot of us have the bandwidth to do that because yep. we have queer fam You know, we have a, a different yep. queer family structure that maybe doesn't involve our lives surrounding children and keeping our own little people alive. So we have yep. the bandwidth to help keep our neighbors and community members alive.
1: Yeah, I was thinking. A it makes me lot think of Dolly Parton,
0: about- who I think is gay.
1: Ah! Dolly, I mean, it doesn't matter. If she's gay. She's gay. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, I
0: think of Dolly Parton as queer. I don't believe that that's a real husband, but anyway.
1: <laughs> i watched the documentary on her her husband is in it not at all
0: there's i just don't think there's any way that that person it's like stedman with oprah you're like okay
1: yeah like, totally uh, yeah, yeah it's uh-huh. so we cool it, that
0: stedman. that that beard guy gets to live in your house that's and he's yeah. providing you a great service of you know getting yes. to pass but we all know what's really
1: going <laughs> on we know what's happening um i you know i in terms of what you were just talking about Um, I've been writing a lot about about privacy uh, and about who shares the insides of their lives and who has to. Uh, and um, Jose Esteban Munoz wrote about this as well, saying that, you know, queer people and people of color never had a right to privacy, and so it means something different to share the insides of our of our lives. It's not an expectation that we have that we get to be private. And And I think the same way around queerness, we don't have an expectation queer families that the state is going to take care of us. We've always invented ways to take care of ourselves. and And now, you know, the government, we've had a massive pandemic, the government completely fails. And so, of course, you know, we are at the forefront of caring for other people. This is how we've always had to build our communities through mutual aid and mutual care in the expectation that we are not going to be cared for in any other way and by any other people. Um, So, you know, I think there are these gifts that are given to you um, by, it it, is, you know, it it is not a gift to be an oppressed person, (laughs) right? You know, but, we learn to live in the face of that oppression in the face of that violence. And that is, that sh- makes us able to lead in times of crisis.
0: Yeah. Well, I, um, I'm trying to look at other things. Joe, Oh, the science ho that's in my, this house. is like, this is like, I was like this this is, you this call is, this Joe a thing thing. science ho.
1: This has not been the lightest conversation. I'm sorry for that.
0: I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I was like, let me just think of. I was like, let me think of something real snappy and poppy. You know, sometimes like on the podcast, we just like try different weird foods or just like you oh, know, yeah. popcorn some advice questions or whatever, whatever right. thing. But um you know, talk about Phantom of the Opera.
1: The the, the Phantom of the Opera. And Ace of Bass. The Phantom of the Opera <laughs> soundtrack from the original Broadway cast and the Ace of Bass first album were my two first albums that I bought at a used CD store in like 1990 something, 1992 or something. Uh, and I didn't know I was gay because gayness wasn't a possibility back then, but I was very gay.
0: What do you think is the inner. I mean, we, we went to watch uh, Phantom of the Opera a couple years ago. Mm. Um, in LA at the Pantages and we you know just had a real revival moment listening to the soundtrack mm-hmm. and when we talked about it, we realized that every gay person we knew had had a Phantom of the Opera phase or many of them oh, did. Oh
1: absolutely yes uh-huh no I, I absolutely did. I, my, my, my mother and I would drive uh, in her Mazda MPV minivan and it was like You know, my parents were, we did not, we did not come from means. Uh, And I thought it was so classy that my mom's minivan had um, one of those, it it was used, it had one of those little um, CD exchangers, but it was in the trunk. You had to like open the trunk. And it was like a six disc exchanger. So you could put six discs in there and like pick out one, which one you want to listen to. And one of them was absolutely the Phantom of the Opera soundtrack. And my little prepubescent ass was hitting all the soprano notes or thinking that I was thinking that I was hitting all the soprano really? notes more accurately. Oh yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: Hi listeners. It's me, Nicole. If you would like to support me and Ponyo in particular, our comics and animal illustrations, Go to patreon.com slash Nicole J. Georges, and for as little as $2 a month, you can have access to hundreds of pages of otherwise unpublished diary comics. For the price of one cold brew plus tip, you can become an honorary Sagittarian, and for the price of two vegan cupcakes or two vegan donuts, you can become a Ponyos Friend Club member, at which point you really start raking in goods, including new buttons. Check it out. Patreon.com slash Nicole J. Georges. Do you have any advice for queer people who are in Mm. pandemic right now?
1: Mm Hmm. Um, Yeah. You know, I think just it's good. We have a long road ahead. Um, You know, I really I wanted to make sure I talked about the vaccines a little bit. Um, So there is hope. Um, You know, Biden. Biden sucks, right? We all. Biden sucks. Blah 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 blah. Biden. The executive branch will has incredible power to respond to a crisis like COVID. The Biden administration will be leaps and bounds different night and day from what Trump was doing. I can't even express to you how bad the Trump administration has been. Um, I've seen behind uh, the curtain more than I would like to. And every time we thought we knew how bad it was, it was actually worse every time. Um, and we would get on the, on the phone with Tony Fauci or whoever and we would hear what was actually happening. Um, it, was, it was worse um, than what we thought. So, you know, there is hope. Um, the vaccines, uh, Moderna and Pfizer reported around 90 to 95% efficacy. We need to all take a deep breath. I think the, the vaccines have been sold to us as we'll get a vaccine and we're back to normal. We don't yet know. Um, this is the best possible news we could have at this point. We know the vaccine prevents, uh, COVID disease, but we don't yet know whether the vaccine prevents COVID infection. They're doing those studies right now. They're digging out those data from the clinical trials. That's called a secondary endpoint. So they don't actually measure whether or not people got COVID, whether they got the virus until the end of the clinical trial. So we know that it prevents people from getting sick from COVID, but we don't know whether it prevents people from getting the virus. If it doesn't prevent people from getting the virus, it won't prevent people from transmitting the virus. So the vaccine effectively, that would still be incredibly useful because people who get vaccinated would be much less likely to get sick and die. But that doesn't mean that it will protect everyone. And as a matter of fact, if people don't get sick, they could transmit the virus more. So we, we need to continue to, think about care for our communities. We need to understand that next summer is going to be much better, summertime when you can go outside and be social outside. We're going to get a deep breath then, but we have to get through the winter first. And we need to continue to really mitigate our risks, to work um, on communicating with our close friends who we do see. We need, if you don't have a pod, think about joining a pod or forming a pod. Um, If you do have a pod, for the next couple of months, watch the numbers in your city and town. They're going up everywhere. As the numbers go up, you have to turn your risk down to care for other people and yourself and the people in your pod. Um, so there is there is hope. It's not going to be like this for forever, but it is not going to be good for the next few months. Uh, and and that means, but but we have agency. We have the ability to care. We have the ability to to, to change things. You know, every single action we do is an action that has the ability to make things better. And so, you know, when you're masking up in the grocery store, when you're um, Zooming with a friend uptown instead of taking the train to their house to hang out, think about that as saving lives, because it is.
0: Can I ask you a scientist opinion question? Yes. If I am outside with a friend in Los Angeles, and we are six to eight feet apart, do we yep. still wear masks outside?
1: Um, it's, a good, it's a good question. Um, the answer is, um, the answer is we don't know actually. Um, and uh, you know, I think that we need to say that more often. We need to be okay with not knowing. We need to be okay with not knowing and still managing risk. Um, so for me with my pod members, when we go outside and walk, um, we don't wear masks. For me, with outside members, um, you know, even if I'm six feet away, unless I'm eating or drinking, I'm usually wearing a mask. Um, I'm pretty risk averse. Uh, it just makes me feel good to be careful. Uh, and, but I, you know, I certainly don't judge folks. You know, I so I don't wear a mask when I walk my dog, and I stay very far from everyone. But it makes me feel nice to be able to be outside for ten minutes a day not in a mask. And, and, you know, I think that we have to say this, you know, we have to be able to make decisions for ourselves mitigating the risk, right? Um, You know, I have my mask in my hand, if anyone comes near me, or if I meet a friend on the street, I mask up before I come close to them and talk. Um, So, you know, I think we're all doing the best we can. And we, we don't, you know, um, we don't know exactly what the right set of tools is. Um, an epidemiologist friend describes it to me as the Swiss cheese thinking. Um, if you Each slice of Swiss cheese has some holes in it, and each is one intervention. So being outside, wearing masks, getting tested, having a pod. And when you add all of the slices of Swiss cheese together, you see no light from one end to the other. Mm-hmm. Because each hole in one slice of cheese is filled by... A piece of cheese in the next right all of these interventions are additive the more you do the more of the time the less the less your risk um so i you know that's that's kind of how i'm thinking about it
0: joe thank you for coming to <laughs> the podcast thank you for talking to me uh you're yes, a tender absolutely. pisces i am we love a pisces. tough time for tender
1: pisces oh. it's a very tough time for us yeah you know
0: i i live with the pisces rising so i can understand on some level <laughs>
1: It is It is. Oof, just just the world's sadness becomes our own all the time.
0: Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.